Well, in May of uh, 2013, three men were arrested for forging fake one-pound coins. They had 50,000 of these counterfeit coins, like stashed everywhere in like storage containers, in their cars, in their houses, kind of like wherever they could find a spot. 50,000 of these fake one-pound coins everywhere. And the number one, I found out in kind of hearing about the story, the number one currency that's counterfeited is the British pound. So, yay! Uh, There's one stat that I read that as many as one in 30 pounds that we have are, are, is, that, is actually a forgery. It's like one thirtieth of everything that we have is possibly counterfeit. And counterfeit money, I mean, it looks real. It can even pass by as real, but it isn't. It's fake. Counterfeit money isn't just benign, though. It's not just kind of like, oh, I'll make some counterfeit coins and spend it. It actually undermines the value of real money, of the actual real currency. Operation Bernard was a plan by the Nazis in World War II to drop counterfeit five-pound notes all over Britain to kind of undermine the currency, to bring about, as quote-unquote, to bring about a collapse of the British economy. That was like the plan. Now, that actually never happened. And, but as much as I would have loved for it to rain money, that would have been pretty great. Like, where's this all coming from? I don't know. Let's just take it. Um, if, if, if that undermines the value of the currency, then that, it's worthless. Of course, the British economy didn't, didn't collapse. There's still Brexit, so who knows? But it's still, that's right, there's still time. But it's still disruptive. Counterfeit is still disruptive. And a currency based on a counterfeit just can't stand. That's because we all have trust that this equals one pound. We all have faith that this stands for the thing that it says it stands for. Trust or faith is what keeps currency alive. And the same is true for things bigger than money. What do we have trust in for meaning in our lives? Is it real or is it counterfeit? Do we even know? Or, or how could we possibly know? You know, some things are obviously counterfeits, like trying to pay with Monopoly money or something like that. Those are, that's obvious. But some things aren't so obvious, and we could be carrying around a fake coin and not even know it. A counterfeit is something that looks like the real thing. It promises to act like the real thing. Deliver real value, but in the end is actually worthless. And the only thing worth trusting is that which is real. That's true for money. It's all the more true for our lives. So how can we tell what's real and what's a counterfeit? John, our author, is concerned about this question in this section here. And he's kind of like an expert in what's real and what's not. He's kind of like those uh, uh, currency kind of counterfeit expert guys who say, oh, this is off, so therefore it's fake. You know, he's re relaying that expert knowledge to the churches he's writing here in 1 John. And he's also re relaying that information to us as we read it. So that's what we're going to look at. What is counterfeit faith and what is real faith? Because if there's a counterfeit faith out there, we don't want any part of that. We want to be part of what's real. That's what's worth spending our lives for. So let's jump into um, what counterfeit faith looks like first. Antichrists. That was surprising when we read it. <laughs> there are lots of antichrists. The last, what in the world is going on? Some kind of end times thing? Uh, I mean, I think when I hear antichrist, I think of some kind of doomsday prophet on the street corner, slightly deranged, wearing like an A4 board saying like the end is near and saying like, you know, Donald Trump is the antichrist or something like that. Mm. Now, the idea that, um, also that during these so-called end times, there's one antichrist that will rise up and destroy everything. That's, that's the kind of, I just think of someone who uses that word, they're crazy. That's what I think whenever I hear that. But John is using this word in a bit of a different way. He's saying that there are antichrists to come in the future, and, but also there's antichrists now. And, the way, and these are very 
specific people. Like antichrists were part of churches that knew about the faith, that experienced Jesus' family and left it and are using that against the church. And he's writing a warning, which means that these antichrists are kind of in their midst or involved in their lives in some way at the moment. That's a very kind of specific thing. That's less of a weird kind of doomsday prophet thing and more of kind of someone who isn't maybe out for your best good, you're out for, in your interests. So what do they do? Well, they were one time were part of the church, but they left those relationships. And John says that because they left the family of God, that proves they weren't really committed to a family of God. They chose not to belong. That was different than Indira and Lisa who are moving to London. It's not like, oh, well, this is basically, I didn't pick this passage <laughs> because they're leaving. Uh, because they're part of the church. The church is more than just one church. It's the, the global church. Uh, the Antichrists are also known to be liars. Whoever denies the Father, whoever denies Jesus, is a liar. And this is what it means to be an Antichrist for John. So an Antichrist is anyone who is anti-Christ. Anyone who's completely against him. But not someone who, doesn't, uh, who, who just doesn't like Jesus. It's someone who's been part of the church, knows about him, and goes against the church, uses that knowledge against the church. They leave those relationships, and they deny that Jesus is who he says he is. And in verse 26, it says, they are basically, John is saying, I'm writing to this so you won't be led astray. So what we can infer from that is the Antichrist are people who are trying to lead others astray, trying to lead others away from where they ought to be. So what does this lead to? Well, if you deny the Father... If you deny the Son, if you leave the family that God is creating here on earth, being an antichrist leads to being outside of God. Verse 23, the beginning part says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So no one who denies the Son has the Father. If you deny the Son, then you can't have a Father. That means you're outside of God's family. And John's writing this for two reasons. One, to teach people why people leave the faith. That's a big question, especially in the early church. Why are people leaving? This can be hard to understand sometimes. The second one is to be on our guard against others and against ourselves because this problem remains in us as well. We like to be led astray. If we can be led astray, that proves there's something wrong within us because we want to be. So, And if anyone here thinks they're above being an antichrist, think again. It's a warning to all of us. All of us have potential to be antichrist. It's kind of like if you're thirsty looking for water, and there's someone who's selling water, which is quite convenient because you're thirsty, and they, um, they say, oh, it's pure water, completely pure water with just a little bit of fertilizer in it, though, just a pinch. Not to do any, like, real horrible damage, probably. Um, and then, uh, well, okay, well, so maybe, maybe you don't like that. Well, I have this other water. It's pure water, the purest water you've ever seen, just an eensy-weensy port of rat poison in it. That will probably not taste good, but in the end, you know, it's not going to do you really any real damage. It's like, okay, okay, okay. He pulls out the water from underneath the counter. It's the good stuff. He looks around. It's like, this is the real water. It's pure. It's just been radiated a tiny bit. And it's not going to do any short-term damage. It's just you'll have to worry about it in the future, but it's completely pure water. I mean, I think this is what life is like. Life is just one opportunity after another, offering 95% of what you want and 5% of something that will kill you in the end. Something that looks good on the outside, a counterfeit, but isn't what it really promises doesn't live up to the promises, and in the end, will kill us. Now, I think what John is writing, even though we don't think of Antichrist today, I think what John is writing is pertinent to us today, 
because we may not use the hip term antichrist very often in our language, but there are plenty of counterfeit options out there for us to jump onto. There's like more than John had in his day. And here are two that we're just going to spend a little bit of time on. The first is an unfortunate export from America. Sorry, the American dream, uh, a.k.a. here probably like the middle class dream. What does it look like? to live the, the, the middle class dream. Well, you work hard, you go to a good school, get a good first job, build your CV. You get a good first partner, have some kids, get a good car, care about fashionable causes, be nice to people, work hard, get money, retire. And all of that equals the good life. Materialism, consumerism, that's what this is steeped in. That's not the good life. It promises stuff, it doesn't promise goodness. This is a good way to give up on life, a great way to give up on life, but look like you're doing good on the outside. Now, none of these things are bad in themselves, but we're meant for far more than this. We're meant for more than a good family. We're meant for more than a good partner or a good house. This is a counterfeit gospel. This is saying, here's how to have the good life, which is gospel, which is good news. And this is completely counterfeit because the biggest thing our hearts long for is missing. And when something is missing for a long time, we grow accustomed to it and we call it normal. Sooner or later, and this is a tragedy. Now, maybe we see that. We see, oh, well, I'm not going to be a consumerist. I'm going to be like a really spiritual person. So this is what I kind of call like DIY faith, um, which is basically we want to be spiritual. And we know that having all the things isn't going to satisfy us. So we like, you know, summon our, our inner, inner guru, and we turn to spiritual things. You know, this can be good, but I've noticed a similar kind of consumerism applied to spiritual stuff, what I call kind of DIY faith. It's like piecing bits together. You, you like this preacher or this podcast or this blogger or whatever, these books, and you take what you like and you discard what you don't. And your faith is in some kind of vending machine. You have a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little of that, and put it together. Oh, there's my faith. And it assumes that you're the expert who knows best because you're picking all the things and discarding all the things. And basically what it does, it just encourages what you already believe. Because once something offends you or rubs you the wrong way, you discard it and move over to something else. There's a word for that in the psychology world. It's called confirmation bias. You're just searching for what you want all the time. And if something doesn't come into contact, or if something does come into contact with that that's offensive, inevitably this is going to happen, and especially when it comes to God. God's offensive. You ditch it and you find some other book, podcast, blogger, speaker, whatever. What this does is it creates a merely internal faith. There's no real community around that. You might find some community online, but that's not real community. It's a counterfeit faith. I mean, frictionless payment systems like contactless cards, things all like that, that's great. But frictionless family is horrible. That's a tragedy. It's not really people being with other people. And frictionless relationships prove that you really aren't close with each other. Both of these are tragic, that middle class dream and the DIY faith. Both of them are tragic. Both of them appear to give a good thing on the outside, but they don't deliver. They have at least that 5% or more that will kill you in the end. So John does not want us to be led astray, which is why he's writing. That's why he says in verse 26, he doesn't want us to be led astray. So if we follow these tragic antichrist kind of paths, we will be led astray. But then he says in verse 24, as for you. So he's talking about the antichrist in the previous verses. Now verse 24 says, as for you, those who aren't part of the Antichrist, those who are part of the church, he has some things to say. He's writing to those who are here on a Sunday. Basically, leaving counterfeit faith, now he focuses in on real faith, those who possess real faith. So, what is real faith about? Well, before anything, if we have real faith, 
We are children of God. Verse one of chapter three. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. What can someone do to become a child? What do they do? They don't do anything. It happens to them. They're born. Our Father has lavished all of his love on us, has given us the blessing of being his children. How amazing is that? It's mind-boggling. And we just kind of live every day. Amen. We live every day kind of like assuming it. Like, oh, yeah, I'm a child. That is insane. That should like, bring us to awe, bring us to wonder. And, but it, it doesn't stop there because being a child of God comes with lots of other things. And just as John brings up just a few things. The first thing is it brings eternal life. If you look at verse 25, and this is what he's promised us, eternal life. Now, eternal life is maybe a churchy way of talking, right? It's not like we talk about eternal life very often. But the way that John talks about eternal life is something that is not just experienced in the future, but it's something experienced now. We get to experience eternal life now, the good life now. So the first thing is experiencing eternal life is living in the Trinity. Living in the Trinity. Now that comes from verse 24. As for you, see what you have heard from the, from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. So we get to remain in the Son. We get to remain in the Father. Remain is another way of saying live or abide or kind of um, breathe. So we get to live in the Father and the Son. But I said the Trinity, right? Well, where does the Spirit come in? We'll look at verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains on you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. An anointing we receive from him remains on us. That's the Holy Spirit. And verse 20 even says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. That's the Holy Spirit. The anointing God has given us remains in us, remains on us. This anointing teaches us all things, and it's real. It's not fake. This is the real thing. This is God himself upon us. This anointing is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Before we follow Jesus, we don't have the Holy Spirit. We don't. We don't have God himself living in us. When we follow Jesus, we do. That's insane. That's crazy. I love it. John describes that as anointing, or, or another word for that could be baptism. What happens in a baptism? Well, if, if, you're, uh, if you're a Baptist, you get dunked under the water, and you come out, you're completely saturated, completely wet. That's like just completely covered in water. That's what anointing is like, being completely saturated in the Spirit. That's what we are as children of God. It's entirely covered by the presence of God himself through the person of the Spirit. And that's what living in the Trinity is like. Living in the Trinity by itself sounds theoretical. Put that way, that's amazing. It empowers us to live in a way that we couldn't before. We remain in the Father, we remain in the Son, and we are saturated with the Spirit. Now, depending on kind of if you have a church background, kind of what church background you're from, this might be a bit controversial, but I think it's important for us to look at how John is describing what being baptized in the Spirit is like, because he uses the term anointed. John's writing to the church, the whole church, and he's using the term anointed. He says all of them are children of God, all of them are anointed. To be anointed is to be children of God, to be children of God, to be anointed. There's no kind of like people who are or are a little bit or whatever. Everyone who follows Jesus has been baptized by the Spirit. All who have been baptized by the Spirit follow Jesus. There exists no Christian who is not baptized by the Spirit. It's how we're given new hearts. 
there are not multiple stages to the Christian life. There's some out there who think if you follow Jesus, you have to follow him for a bit, and then if you get really good at following Jesus, then you get like baptized by the Spirit. That's ridiculous, because that's not grace. That's not how Jesus works. That's not what John is saying here, more, most importantly. If we're going to surrender our lives to the Word, this is what the Word is telling us. That, I think there are times when we experience the, Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in ways that we can't understand, in ways that don't make any sense, in ways that sometimes can be quite powerful. And sometimes that's wrongly defined as being baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit can give us gifts, can take away gifts, can do whatever he wants. But being, how John is talking about, being in the Spirit all the time is what children of God get, every single one. The class system is horrible for our society. Let's not bring it into the church. You're either part of Jesus or you're not. And we're all, all of us, actually simultaneously, the poor lower class not having anything and the rich royal class who have everything in Jesus. That's who all of us who are part of the church get to be a part of. And within Redeemer, there's going to be different experiences of how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And I think that's a very good thing. I think it's a very healthy thing. Our challenge is not to be, stay where we're comfortable. Our challenge is not to stay what we're used to. Our challenge is to be unified by what the Bible teaches is right, what the Bible teaches is real, not counterfeit. And the Bible clearly teaches that those with real faith are anointed children of God. So, leaving that sidebar a little bit, um, what are some of the benefits then of living in the Trinity, of having this eternal life? Well, some of the benefits of living in the Trinity, well, first, verse 28, we are confident and unashamed as we look to the future. We get to be confident and unashamed as we look to the future. Verse 28 says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, which is the future, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Having been saturated by the presence of God himself, having been called children of the king, that's what gives us confidence. We aren't pulled down by our mistakes and failures because our confidence doesn't reside in our successes. It also doesn't reside in our failures. It doesn't reside in whether we feel like we've won or we feel like we haven't. We can be freed from the horrible race of just doing things better or just trying to be good people. We can live with a confidence that God enjoys you. God actually loves you. He is so excited that he gets to know you. You are the pinnacle of everything God has created. He made this entire world so that he could get to know you. It's amazing. Have you heard the term apple of, of your eye? That means you get so close to somebody that you can see your reflection in them. I mean, if I talk to, you know, Ross, hey, Ross, how's it going? I mean, that's going to be very strange. But when God himself looks at you, he sees a reflection of himself, a reflection of God himself in our own eyes. That's what it means to be loved by God. That's what it means to be children of God. He loves us more than anything. We're also freed from shame. Shame tells us we don't just do bad things. We are bad people. And through Jesus, God tells us, no, you are my child. He has lavished his love upon us. We're his treasured kids. When God is hanging out with other people, he's the annoying parent is always like looking at pictures on his phone. Oh, have you seen what Nick has been up to? Like, hey, check that out. And all the other parents are like, oh, here we go. You know, the gospel is the good news that all of us who don't have it together can experience this kind of life, can experience this kind of love, anointed by the spirit, confident and unashamed. There is... Um, a word that theologians have that's equal parts interesting, helpful, and nerdy, which is ticking all my boxes, um, called uh, perichoresis. It's a Greek word. Uh, we're all going to get real nerdy for a second. We won't stay there very long, I promise. Um, so peri, 
means around or about, kind of like moving around. And choresis is where we get the word choreography, like dance. Just dance around each other. And theologians use this word to describe what the Trinity life is like. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all interacting around each other, or all, all this, have this kind of Trinitarian dance. And that's what we get pulled into, being part of his family. We're invited to the Trinitarian kind of dance together. And that's what life with Jesus is like. So there, now you have a fun word to use at the next dinner party. Oh, theology isn't a common dinner topic? Okay. <laughs> Nobody told me that. Why don't I ever have any invites anymore? Um, here, so all that is great, right? So what does that mean for us? What, what, what should we do then? Well, John tells us, if this is who you are, this is who God says you are, children who are anointed or saturated by the Spirit, live it out. Continue to remain in him. The Spirit is remaining in you. So our job then is to continue to remain in him, abide in him, to live in him. Remaining in God means remaining in his gospel. Every counterfeit out there, is vying for our attention. Every counterfeit out there, we are, how many messages do we get just from our phones all the time, let alone everything else out there telling us how we are to live? How are we going to combat these messages, let alone all the problems within us? How are we, how are we gonna combat those lies when you hear you're not good enough? What do we surrender to? When we read the Bible, is it just words or are we actually practicing it? When we pray, are we just ticking off a box to make us feel religious? John calls us to live pure lives at the end of verse three. All who have this hope in him that we have purify themselves just as he is pure. That means how we use the internet from looking for houses to looking for porn. How are we gonna use the internet? That means how we spend our money, what we enjoy doing. Is it pure? I mean, counterfeits let us down. Remain in his gospel, the real faith. Remaining in God means remaining in his family. We can choose to leave the church, to leave God's family altogether, or we can choose to do just enough to make us look good on the outside so no one will ask the hard questions. But let's remain together as a family. All of us have burdens. How can we bear them for each other? We're supposed to. How can we communicate what those burdens are to each other? If you're in a core group, are you going through the applications from the sermon together? Or kind of what are you doing together? It's just a, um, on Monday night when, when you kind of get those questions, you can even just, you don't have to meet together with other people. You just text them. How, what about this question? How are you doing with this? What are you reading? Or whatever. It, it doesn't take very much. Conversations over dinner in our missional communities. What are we talking about? What are we kind of, what are we focused on? Also, remaining in God means remaining in his mission. We can choose to chase after all of our small, selfish little goals that we have in our lives, and some of those goals can be very good on the outside, but if those are our primary goals, we're just going to be let down. Remaining on God's mission means we're always on the lookout for other future children that God is adopting, because he is. God might even call you to be a part of that adoption process. Let's pray for these opportunities. Let's be expectant, and not just inviting people to stuff, though that's great, not everyone's going to come to church. Just bring the church to them. You yourself have the power. You're a child of God to speak the gospel and to people who don't know Jesus yet. You are anointed. Lastly, we look to the future. So eternal life is something in the present, but John also writes that it's something to look towards in the future. And these are the last two verses, verses two and three of chapter three. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. It's verse two. 
What we will be, we don't know. We have no idea. We have no clue. But we will be like Christ because we're going to see him in all his glory. We only see Jesus and his work dimly at the moment. There are many parts of our lives that are crammed full of darkness, crammed full of brokenness. Many parts of our world that are just full of darkness, full of brokenness. The difficulties in your life, everything you can think of, when you see Christ, all those difficulties will pale in comparison. We will see him. We will truly see him without anything holding us back. As he is, the king, the liberator, the sacrifice, the life. So don't let the real and legitimate struggles of today, I get it, not everything is easy. Don't let those real things today, though, eclipse this fact that this is our hope. Hope is something in the future, something we don't yet have, but it gives us a fuel for today. That's what hope is all about. And our hope is in the living God. And we say it every week, and we'll say it at the end of the service. All our hopes are set on the risen Christ. Now, this is not easy. It's very easy to say it on a Sunday. It's very easy for me to preach it. It's incredibly difficult for me to live it. I don't think this is without pain. This is hard. And life, it's easy to get us down, either from our own deserved consequences or from what others have done to us. And really, just from the burden and labor of living in a broken world, it's hard. But all our hopes are set on the risen Christ. Jesus offers us something real, and we know it's real because Jesus really did it. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be anointed with this new life. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be freed from counterfeits and given the gift of living in real faith. The relationship between the Father and the Son was disrupted so that we, all of us, could be the children of God. And Jesus' body was broken. Jesus rose again, though, from his resurrected, uh, in, in his resurrected body so that we can be confident, we can be unashamed, so that our lives that were once far from God, disconnected from his love, can now be brought into God's family, all of us, and experience God's love and enjoy life in eternity. And the way that happened was that Jesus' blood was poured out so that the Spirit might be poured out upon us. This is something Jesus did willingly because he knew the Father had more children to adopt. And he knew this is the only way it was going to happen. Now, if you reject the counterfeits and embrace real faith, you are welcome to come up here and eat and drink with us. You don't have to be an official part of Redeemer, um, but you do have to surrender to his love. And if you haven't yet surrendered to Jesus' love, this could just be a time as we're singing to think of, about yourself. Do you embrace the real? Do you embrace the counterfeit? And what would it be like to embrace more of the real in your life? And if you want to embrace the real faith with us today, in which case, please join us. This table's open to everyone, whether you've walked up here a million times or if this is your first time. Because through Jesus, we get to be rescued from an, a counterfeit life, given the gift of real faith, of eternal life, now and in the future. Let me pray.